This episode of Bookworm is brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com slash bookwormfree and use the code bookwormfree to get one breakfast item free per box while your subscription is active. Welcome back to Bookworm, Corey Hickson. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be a recurring guest now, I guess is what you could call me. <laughs> the most frequent Bookworm guest. Actually, I think you're tied with Sean Blanc. He was on twice before, well, too. Only, only one more. <laughs> it's true. Well, I enjoyed the the last conversation we had about difficult conversations, and uh, and you were gracious enough to come back and talk to me about today's book, which is uh, Feel Good Productivity. But before we we get there, we've got a format for this the show, and uh, we normally go back and we check in on our action items. So uh, I'm kind of curious, Corey, were you able to? Uh, I suppose you're still off from the the day job, so you probably haven't had to revisit this before your next scheduled difficult conversations. Or have you had a difficult conversation in the last two weeks? So I have not had a difficult conversation in the nature of this book. From a parenting standpoint, I've had a bunch of difficult conversations. <laughs> but uh, from a from the nature of this book, I haven't had one um, that would directly apply. Uh, there will probably be one or two coming up here in the near future. So... I haven't followed up on this quite yet, but I can see it coming very quickly uh, based on some things that are happening. So when that happens, I will do my best to follow up in a way that doesn't reveal too many details of the difficult (laughs) conversation. Fair enough. All right. And mine was to share how I was feeling without uh, without judgment. And uh, I feel like I have done this, but there's probably more opportunities where I could have done this and I didn't do it. Um, I do think, though, that the mindset shift is, has clicked for me where whenever I'm feeling frustrated and I'm trying to communicate that to somebody else, I'm trying to share, like, I'm feeling this way because this thing happened and not saying because you did this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think if that was the only thing that I got out of that uh, last book that we read, it probably would have been a worthwhile read. So thanks for recommending that one, Corey. Of course. I have a question for you about that. Okay. So when when you think back now, right, and you have your whole process, you have your mind map process, then you sink that down into Obsidian. When you think back on that book, if I quizzed you, and not like in terms of asking questions, but I said like, could you write a one page or how confident would you be on a one page mm. that actually fairly decent, decently captures that book? How confident would you be? Uh, I would not be confident at all, but that's also part of my personality. I think, um, I tend to over prepare for things. And one of the lessons that I've had to learn, especially when I occasionally get asked to preach at my church is not to prepare too much because I get so locked into the format. So I'm sure there's a little bit of residual knowledge there where like I, I know the things, but I don't really, I have trouble recalling them in the moment. Like if you're going to put me on the spot right now, like my heart rate is already picking up a little bit. <laughs> but if I were to sit down and have some time and actually work through it, I'm sure that stuff would would bubble up just by the nature of the way that I I take the the notes on the books. That's why I do the, the crazy mind maps and all that kind of stuff. I, I know that that's, Crazy. That's craziness for a lot of people. It's it's definitely a bridge too far for most normal normal folks. But I I believe it. It helps me, uh, in 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 the moment, kind of piece together the things. Like that's the, the the thing about this is, 
Um, knowledge, there's different versions of knowledge, right? There's there's the knowledge that we can like dig up from an archive somewhere when we need to find it, like a receipt or an account number or something like that. And then there's knowledge that we know, and then there's knowledge that gets applied. And I feel like this is kind of where in between levels two and three, like if you just focus on the the knowledge that you know, that you can spit back in the facts, none of it really gets translated, which is why we did the action items for Bookworm way back in the day. It's like, okay, so we read all these books and these dots are connecting, whether we realize it or not, whether we have the the actual artifact in front of us of this connects to this connects to this, you know, your brain is naturally kind of doing that stuff. And you maybe don't even realize how much of it is actually stuck until you try to put it into practice. That's why I do the sketch noting for the the sermon notes as well. It's like if you were to ask me what were the exact scriptures, you know, that my pastor preached about last week, I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you the main theme and like what stood out to me and and what I was applied what I applied from that because I took the time to synthesize the information into these these pictures. So yeah, and the reason I asked the question is because I think about my action item and I'm going to have to go back and very much revisit my notes. Like I Right now, if you asked me to like recap the key five points of difficult conversations, I mean, I might be able to get like three of them, but it was, I felt so jumbled. So what I did, (laughs) you know, to, for the listeners, and I told you this a little bit, a little bit ago, I actually did the Mike Schmidt's mind mapping method for this book. Cause I wanted to see if I thought there was a tangible output difference in the (laughs) tangible output for it. And let me tell you, dear listener, it is, uh, it's an event. Right. It's a, it's a thing, right? Like it's not this, this all like, Oh, I'm going to create a mind map and everything's going to be super easy. Like my mind map, I have to, if I zoom out to where I can see the entire mind map, I can read nothing. I can barely even tell there's text there. Um, but what I tell you, what I will say is I think that it helps me with what you're saying, that knowledge to application step, like it Mm -hmm. helps me with that knowledge step a lot, that step two, a lot. So hopefully that, that pans out to be true. Will I take the time every week? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's going to depend. Uh, would it be worth me to take the time every week? Absolutely. Yes, it would absolutely be worth it for me to do that. But that's why I asked the question. So thanks. Nice. I'd love to see your mind map if you're willing to share that at some point. Um, well, gladly. One other thing I'll share with this is the temptation can be when you start taking notes from books to uh, capture too much or too little. If you are just jotting down like a few things that really stand out to you. You're not diving in and, and applying the Mortimer Adler how to read a book method where you're really, in my opinion, trying to grok the arguments that the author is making. So I feel like you got to do a little bit more, got to put a little more, more weight on the bar for, for that. But then also once you start doing something like mind maps, specifically the temptation can be, well, I'm just going to recreate the structure of the book. Don't do that either. <laughs> yeah. Like I, what, when I, when I dumped all of my notes, so I use, because the people who listen will probably be interested in this. Um, I use a plugin to Obsidian to where I highlight in a in a digital book and then it automatically draws all my highlights into Obsidian directly into the file and then I use that file to make the, the mind map. Uh, my I have in the file that it downloaded was 10,737 words. Whoa. Now that, inc- that includes the like location, 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 but still that can't be that many, uh, that can't be that many <laughs> words. But I thought that was uh, a lot. I, I highlighted a lot more than I thought I was going to. So, all right. Well, the world needs more mind maps. So, yeah. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. One other thing I'll mention here before we get into today's book 
uh, because this episode will be published very shortly, just a couple of days before the next Subsidian University cohort kicks off. So I mentioned that last time, but this will be the third cohort. I'm actually thinking I'm going to rebrand this cohort specifically as Practical PKM because I feel like there's a promise with PKM where you can just dump all those notes into Obsidian. You have the 10,000 lines that, that Corey was talking about. And then I'll just use the app or I'll use chat GPT and I will discover all these connections and it will create all these insights. And that's not actually true. Um, I actually lean more in the line of not, not having the right information, but, but doing the right thing. So I really, really like the Cal Newport podcast. He's been talking about this deep life stack lately, and that really resonates with me. So I've got my own version of that. I call it the PKM stack. Talked a little bit about that last time. You got information and then you've got the ideas. Uh, those are things that you're going to do something with creatively. And then you've got the actions, which are the routines, projects, and that's all directed by the philosophy and then a reflection process helps you make sure that you don't go off the tracks. So it's going to be based on how to actually do that. And you don't necessarily have to even use Obsidian in order to get something out of it, I would argue, because the first sessions on Mondays are going to be the conceptual PKM stuff. And if you've, if you've subscribed to my newsletter, you'll see you know a lot of there's kind of been a, a sneak preview with some of the, the topics in there. So you can definitely apply the principles of other apps. But then Wednesdays are going to be like the Obsidian workflow days. And this is where it's going to be different from the last time around. I've actually been working on this like starter vault. I need a better name for this thing yet. But I, I, anyways, it's this this vault that you download and it's got all of the plugins set up. It's got all the callouts. It's got all the settings dialed in and it's even got all of the queries. So if you're going to start using it for habit tracking or journaling or even task and project management, like all the lists and the dashboards are in there already for you. So you can just start putting in your your tasks and tracking your habits and doing the journaling. Um, so it's easier to hit the ground running with this. And uh, more information can be found at obsidianuniversity.com slash cohort. Kicks off January 22nd and would love to have you join us. All right, let's talk about today's book. And today's book I picked uh, because it was one that I knew was going to be popular in my circles <laughs> um, because it's written by the... What does it say on the cover? The world's most followed productivity expert, YouTuber Ali Abdal. <laughs> and uh, I don't care for that that title there, but uh, I, I do like Ali's material. Um, I've been following his story for a long time, and he was a, a doctor. Uh, he tells a lot of that story actually in the book, but um, started YouTube on the side, and then that eventually became the 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 main thing. And um, he's put together the part-time YouTuber Academy that I went through. And uh, that's a really great, was a cohort when I did it. I think it's now um, a course, but uh, got a lot out of it. Um, that's actually the reason that my YouTube channel is actually getting some traction is because I'm just applying all the things that Ali talked about there. So I like his, his style. Um, I like his material. I've benefited from a lot of the stuff that he's done. Um, so this book is called Feel Good Productivity, How to Do More of What Matters to You. And I have to say that the title Feel Good Productivity, I don't really like um, because it kind of frames it as, well, just do what you want to do. It kind of reminds me of 
Cal Newport rails against the passion mindset. That's kind of what it triggers in me is like feel good productivity is the passion mindset, but I don't think that's necessarily a fair characterization. So we'll get into the specifics here. Um, it's broken into three main parts with an introduction and then a last word. So introduction and then part one is energize. Part two is unblock and part three is sustain. And then the last section, the last word, think like a productivity scientist. I actually kind of like the, the framing of that. And I think it's a good way to, to conclude the book. Um, curious your first thoughts on feel good productivity, Corey. What did you think when you picked it up? So I um, didn't really have, I mean, I knew Ali Abdal. So I didn't really have like a, an opinion necessarily on what the book might be like. Uh, I agree with you. I The title is, I could give or take the title. Um, I'm not as worried about... Um, the feel good side of it as I am the productivity side of it, but, uh, I can see the argument he's making and I understand, um, I understand where it came from. I know the work that he does on YouTube. And then I knew of his transition from being a doctor to, uh, being a, a YouTuber and a content creator. Um, I don't think I realized that there's a lot of other things. Um, I had no idea that this book he says, in he says in the book that it was 10 years in the making. Um, so, could not be when I looked at the table of contents. It could not be more different than the uh, than the last book we read, the Difficult Conversations book, <laughs> because it's three sections. Every section has three chapters. In every chapter, there are these you know few these six things that we work on, right? Like, and it's very much the like super clean. This is the formula, and I'm going to plug into the formula. We'll talk later about how I think that might have been caused certain things to happen in the in the creation of the book. Um, did every you know did every section need six experiments? I don't know if they did. Um, but but that was my general first take on the book. Um, yeah, I think that's my general. Cool. Well, I'm not sure about the ten years in the the making. I get why he frames it that way. Um, but I also know that uh, the the book project, at least you know from from being a subscriber to Ali's newsletter and and watching some of the th- some of his videos. Um, I, I profess I, I don't watch all of his videos. I'm a weird YouTuber because I like make more YouTube videos than I actually watch. Um, I, I'm telling myself that that's a good thing because then I'm less influenced by other people and I am less likely to fall into the comparison trap. If I see somebody else doing something really good, I tend to be like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> I walk away from it. So ignorance is bliss a little bit, I think, there for me. Well, in your in one in one of your mantras is consume, don't create, right? So that, that actually, or sorry, create, don't consume. I, I mixed it up. Sorry, it, your, one of your mantras is create, don't consume. I thought you were right, trolling so. me there for a second. No, I, I was not. I just mixed it up. My fault. Yeah, create, not consume. Um, but everything that you create is also downstream from what you consume, I believe. So I don't know. It's not that you don't consume, but you're you're curating what you consume. You're, you're strategic about it. But all that to say, like, I feel, and maybe I'm misremembering the story, but it seems like Ali um, was approached about the book deal and then was like, hey, that sounds like, that sounds interesting. I'll do that. And that story that I recall, whether it's true or not, I don't think that happened 10 years ago. But I also understand that, like, the stuff that he has been learning and the things that have allowed him to do what he, he does, first as a doctor and then now as a YouTuber. And, it's even beyond a YouTuber. So when I say Ali Abdal's a YouTuber, he's also like a, 
he, he, run, he organizes and runs a small team. So like, I know how hard that is. YouTuber doesn't do it justice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot more opportunity to apply productivity principles than just sitting down and making stuff. <laughs> so um, I feel like he's speaking from a place that he's had experience and he's had to learn and, and grow the, and understand this stuff, you know, by doing it. So those are typically the, the best kind of books in, in my opinion. Yeah, and my and my take on the ten years was it started when he started studying these things. I think he said he was a psychology minor, um, or he got into psychology and and learning about psychology. So that's my that was my thing of when it when it started. And if you look at the numerous references he gives, um, I mean, there's just psychology researchers all the way through it. So it's yep. uh, behavioral psychologists and, and those type of things all the way through it. So that's. Uh, very easy to see how he he said it was ten years ago, and then the book project came. Yep, cool. So let's jump in and talk through the introduction first. Uh, this is a fairly short section. It starts off by talking about the, this really stressful point in in his uh, his his doctor's career, and I think that's like very attention grabbing, uh, very engaging. So that's a great way to, to start it. And I also really like in this section, he frames the the candle problem, which was something that was developed by Carl Dunker, if I grab the notes correctly. Um, and the, the problem goes like this. You have three objects, a candle, a book of matches, and a box of thumbtacks. How do you stick the candle to the corkboard on the wall so that when it's lit, the candle wax won't drip onto the table below? And Ollie's point was that most people ignore the solution, which is that the thumbtack box itself is a candle holder. And uh, I think that is a cool visual because I agree with him that when it comes to productivity, a lot of people try to solve the problem the wrong way. Uh, I think primarily they try to do it by getting more efficient or, and they try to just like cram more work in which I don't know, maybe that's just part of everybody's productivity journey. I mean, that's how I kind of came into uh, learning about productivity myself. I was working at the family business and I was trying to get a little bit more efficient so I could get out of there a little bit earlier. So I picked up getting things done by David Allen and started my lists and the tickler file and all that kind of stuff. And it provides some immediate relief. So I think that there's a lot of good that comes from that, but then that's not enough because what the next step is is that you have more margin now, you have more space, that gets filled by something. So at some point, you gotta figure out what is important to you. It's why I like Cal Newport's uh, Deep Life Stack so much. Um, Ali Abdal is framing it here as feel-good productivity, and this is all based off of the research behind positive emotions and how those affect our cognitive processes. So if you really wanna be productive, Ali's arguing, then you should figure out a way to do what what you like, that's not a, exactly the right framing here. But um, the reason that feel-good productivity works is that it boosts our energy, it reduces our stress, and it also enriches our life. And he also says that success doesn't lead to feeling good. Feeling good leads to success, which I think that I agree with. Can we talk about that more? Yes. Like the that quote, because I wanted to talk about that quote. So success doesn't lead to feeling good. Feeling good leads to success. And I, I don't like that statement. <laughs> I think there's like way more nuance there and I don't remember like how much he breaks it down uh, in the introduction but um I agree that feeling good can lead to success but I don't think that feeling good like okay so I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling great and everything's good but at the same time I'm completely shirking every responsibility that I have 
and I'm okay with that. Like, I, I kind of had a little bit of a, a jolt back on that one. Um, I get what he's going for in terms of the the overarching nature of the book, right? Like, okay, if you're just going at this from a completely disciplined, use time as effectively as we possibly can strategy, you're missing something. You're missing this big piece, right? There's this other piece of your well-being, your motivation, your your things that he would call the feel-good side of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think we can just say that, you know, um, that just because I feel good about about doing something that it's going to lead me to success. I may be feeling good about doing a bunch of activities that have nothing to do with something else in my world that I would say I want to be successful at. So if I want to be an author, right, like talking about books does not help me get to actually being an author of a book, even though I feel really <laughs> good about talking about books. I just I don't ever write words. And that and that's where I um, that's where I kind of had that rub with that with that statement. Yeah, I can understand that, but I and I I think I probably had the same initial reaction, but the more that I brood on that, I think that uh he is right from a certain perspective because I think if you're going to try to do creative work specifically, which is what he does, you can't consistently do that if you've got nothing in the tank. Like you have to make sure that you are refilling. And so I don't think he's saying it in in the sense of, well, you just wait until you feel good and then the success is automatically going to come. Or Because think about it, like his whole, prior to, to uh, being a YouTuber, he was a doctor and he went through medical school and, and that's not an easy thing to do. And even the, the stories that he shares, like those are some high pressure situations so he's kind of done it the other way too. He's kind of brute forced it before. And he's basically saying like, I recognize now that that's not the best approach. And I think typically when you have an experience like that and you realize that was the wrong wrong approach, the pendulum tends to swing uh, more the other way. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that in my life yeah. too. I, I tend to do that. Well, and and I think if we get to, you know, the later chapters where... um talking about like the alignment and um, making sure that you're working in the right areas and for the right things, this all becomes a lot more, it makes a lot more sense because if I'm aligned, I'm more likely to feel good. If I'm aligned with what I'm doing and I'm feeling good, then I'm more motivated to do those things. So it could have been that just the fact that this statement coming at the very, very front end of the book, like if this would have come at the end of the book, I may not have felt as strongly as I felt about it. Sure. That's a good point. Um, I get why he would put it at the beginning of the book, though. I mean, it's right on the cover, feel good productivity. And also, yeah. like, I don't know Ali personally, but he seems to me like the kind of guy who's just like, yeah, I'm just going to say this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. We'll go into uh, section one here. And there's three chapters in each of these sections. I think we'll try to go through all of the chapters but um, really, we're going to frame the discussion through the different parts. So part one is energize, and then the three chapters here, play, power, and people. Um, let's start with play. So the main point here is that if you really want to do something with excellence, you kind of can't put all this pressure on it to be something, you have to kind of hold it lightly and you have to kind of be curious. Um, and 
the point that he's making at the beginning, the the instruction, I guess, is that life is stressful, so we should embrace play because it's going to make it more fun. And he has a bunch of different ways to to do that, which are all of these experiments. Uh, I'm not really sure I like the framing of the experiments, but essentially each of these experiments is like a, a principle. And I get why he did it as an experiment. I mean, he's a, a doctor and he's leaned into the the whole scientific aspect of this. So an experiment just kind of makes sense. But um, the first experiment, he talks about choosing your character. So he's he's saying, and, and I just picked this one because he has eight different play personalities here. And um, there's the collector, the competitor, the explorer, the creator, the storyteller, the joker, the director, or the kinesthete. And I'm curious, Corey, is there one of those, as you read this, that you identified with? I was going to ask you the exact same question. You beat me to it. <laughs> um, I would say, no, there's not one of them. But I think there's two of them that if you smush them together, that's where that's where I sit. Um, so I think I sit more on the director uh, and the kinesthete um, side of it. So um, I just like, you know, figuring out how to lead things well and kind of, you know, making the ships run. Um, and then the industrial and systems engineer in me says, okay, now how do we make it run better, right? Like, how do we look at that, say, and there's this thing, or we're wasting this much time here, or we could be doing this in this different way. And then when I sit down and think about like, okay, I've got a pocket of an hour or two hours, or honestly, like one of the, one of the things I prioritize highly in my weekly scheduling is, all right, where am I going to get out and actually get some exercise in or be outside in nature or move? Because I feel significantly better in the day if I've done something physical, like moved my body in any way. Uh, so I think those are the two the two areas where I resonate. What about you? Gotcha. Well, you're maybe making me change my mind uh, because I am the same way where I, I need to get outside specifically. That was a big takeaway for me during the COVID lockdowns. I, I ran or biked every day from like March to October, which was not a small feat in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But definitely it uh, it helped my uh, my emotional state for sure. I think the two that kind of stand out to me are the creator and the director. The creator more so for me, but I do like to plan and organize things as well. So <laughs> there's definitely the director piece. If you wouldn't have said creator, I would have been very surprised, right? Like if, yeah. if I was looking down through these and I was like, I think Mike's going to say creator. He, you know, I would be surprised if he didn't. Well, what's interesting about that though is like there was a period and I've talked about this before, so I won't tell the whole story, but I, I did say, you know, I guess I'm just not creative. Like I struggled with that piece for a long time. So I don't know. I, I mean, out of those eight different personalities, he's basically taking the approach of like your life as an RPG which is kind of a cool framing, but I'm not sure it's quite that clean. Like I personally believe that everyone is creative. You just have to find the the right way to express it. But yeah, out of the options that he gave us, those are the ones that, that stood out to me. The other thing I liked from this section is um, the idea of side quests. <laughs> so I'm not sure, Corey, are you a, a gamer at all? So I am not a gamer at all. I've tried, I want to be. Like, I think it would be a ton of fun to get immersed in these certain video games where like, you know, like um, Zelda, yep. right? Like I hear about people playing Zelda and I think, man, that would be awesome. And I get bored in like 15 minutes. I'm like, uh, yeah, this is fine, but I could be doing much other 
different things with my life, such as like reading a book, right? Like that's, you know, my, that's where my nature goes. I do a bunch of side quests, but I'm not a gamer. So go ahead. Gotcha. Well, Zelda is the one that came to mind for me because that is, I think the, the perfect application of this principle. I would say I'm a casual gamer. I have kids who are into gaming. They are much more serious about it than, than I am, but I've, We've got a switch, and I've I've played through both uh, Breath of the Wild and the new one, which is Tears of the Kingdom, I believe. Um, and those games are are crazy. It's like a big open world, and like if you're really going to do everything in it, you could you could spend hundreds of hours. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Is I mean, on one level, I, I think about that, and I'm like, hundred hours playing a video game, what a waste of time. But also, I understand the appeal of when you're in there, like the the actual storyline. You could crank through it pretty quickly. I don't know what the, maybe it's 15 hours or something like that. But then there's always all of these additional side quests that you can do. And I see my kids doing this and I I recognize I do the same thing when I play. Like I'll go into a new town or whatever. And the first thing I do is I just go talk to everybody. I find out what all the shops are and I figure out what are the, the, the side quests that are available here. And then, uh, with the the second one specifically, like I'm I'm I've put a bunch of time into it, but I've I'm nowhere close to actually beating the game because the side quests are are so fascinating to me. I'm gonna collect all of the memories and then I'm gonna visit all the sky islands, you know, and all that that kind of stuff. That that's fun for me. So I like this idea of side quests. Um I don't know that I have a, a specific way of how, how I'm gonna apply this to my life, but I did jot this down as an action item to start thinking about side quests for my day. So the way I'm envisioning this, I've got my three to five tasks on my note card and I'm working through, but if there's something that piques my interest throughout the day, maybe I come across an article on a cool new Obsidian plugin and I want to explore that, I will, as long as I'm able to continue to make progress on the things that are important, I'll use some of that margin that's built into my time block uh, plan to go explore the side quests and I won't feel bad about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I, I do this with like apps. So I love finding apps and trying to do things in different ways through like, uh, iPhone apps or uh, Mac apps. Um, the other one would be, uh, teaching, right? Like, Oh, okay. So here's this concept. I've taught it this way for the last four times. What if I taught it this way? And we kind of do like a little mini side quest on, you know, that's how I keep that process fun. At least for me, I can't tell you that the students think it's fun, but that's how I at least mm-hmm. keep it fun um, for me is trying to do these little, well, what if we did it this way or what if we pushed in, in, in this button? So, yeah, I, I really like the side quest part of this because I think it um, it's a good way to keep things uh, more creative and more fun uh, through through some work that you may not think is that fun. Right, right. All right, let's talk about chapter two, Power, because there's one other thing I for sure want to discuss in here, and that is this idea of vicarious mastery. Um, so when he talks about power, I don't think he's talking about Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. He defines power as personal empowerment. So I guess another term for that would be like self-efficacy, maybe self-determination. Mm-hmm which those are, uh, those are topics that I, I really like. But he talked about the uh, experiment number two, the social model method, and he talked about vicarious mastery, which was coined by Albert Bandura, and he even talked about Albert Bandura in 
the book. However, um, I am not sure that the uh, the research here, I don't know. I, I've seen that exact research used other places more effectively. And okay. so I've I've experienced with the, the family business, which uh, is computer software primarily for special education. So like we have this whole line of software for video modeling for real low functioning individuals where they see somebody practicing a social skill, for example, and because they're watching it, they can then generalize that and they can recreate. It's like the most effective way to teach these skills to individuals. And that's all based on the, the research behind video modeling, which is where Albert Bandura comes in, you know, where mm-hmm. like, if you see somebody do something, then you can, you can do it. Um, and Ali's kind of talking about this from a different angle, I feel, but not really talking about the, the video modeling piece. And I feel like that's the thing that maybe could have gone a, a, a little bit deeper there. Like he's not wrong in his framing of this, but it's also not the most powerful example of it. And that's just because of the experience that I have. But let me just share like one specific study that stands out to me, which I think actually fits better than the Albert Bandura research. <laughs> and that's this University of Chicago study where they had the basketball players. Maybe you've heard this one before where the one group practiced free throws for an hour a day for 30 days. The next group practiced, or they didn't actually practice, but they visualized. So this this concept here, that they're picturing themselves making the free throws and the third group did nothing. And then after 30 days, the the group that did nothing, obviously they didn't improve. The, the group that shot the free throws, they improved a lot. But the group that didn't actually touch a basketball, but visualized themselves making the free throws, they improved by almost as much. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't have the study in front of me. I don't have the exact numbers, but I've seen that, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of times. And that I feel is like more powerful for the argument that he's making here, which is, yeah. you know, if you really want to be able to do something, then you can learn to do it other ways. You could watch other people do something and then you can successfully recreate that uh, if you do it the the right way. Yeah. So one, a couple, a couple things. I think Ali does a good job here at hitting the 30,000 foot view of psychology literature around productivity, motivation, you know, those type of things in terms of the names he's researched and the people in the studies they're all what I would consider credible, right? Like when I was in my grad program, I mean, we read about a lot of this stuff. We read, I read a lot of these folks' works um, for, for different reasons, educational, but for different reasons. So there, you know, if there was a validity there, you know, from, okay, like I, I can trust what he's telling me here. I think where you're saying about the, is this the, the best example or, you know, um, I actually kind of didn't you know, resonate with that example as much. I think this got lost between the experiments and then the justification for the experiment, right? Like mm-hmm. I think more of the emphasis of this book was getting these six experiments done yeah. for every chapter. And I'm going to tie into what I, what I can tie into. And, and I think that's just a natural byproduct of the way he, the way he structured the book. I don't think it's bad. Yeah. I just think it's there, there are better examples. And I think your, your example that you gave the, of the basketball study, um, uh, is a, is a more, it's a more, uh, tangible or and a more higher takeaway, if you will. 
I get where he's coming from though, because he's basically touching on a lot of different principles and he really can't go super deep in any one of these if he's going to do six experiments a chapter across nine different chapters. Yeah, yeah. So, but there's some really good stuff in here. I mean, he talks about the Shoshone approach, which is beginner's mind, um, the protege effect, where when you teach something to someone else, you learn it better yourself. Uh, and then there's even something uh, a little bit later here, which I thought was really profound. When we can't take ownership of the situation, you can still take ownership of the process. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, 100%. We could have an hour-long conversation on that specifically. Because uh, that is the thing that I feel a lot of people get stuck with. And maybe it's a bit of a leap for people to get to that point from the introduction. But I think that this is exactly what someone who picks up feel-good productivity needs, is to recognize that the situation isn't necessarily just going to work itself out, but that's okay. You can take ownership of your situation and you can steer your own ship without somebody giving you permission to do that. It's not that explicit in this book, but it the thread is there and I really like it. Um, are you are you interested in talking about chapter three? Because if not, I have a real quick hit on chapter three. Uh, yeah, let's talk real briefly chapter three. So um, the thing that I just wanted to call out from this is, uh, so chapter three is called People. And um, he talks about energy vampires at the beginning, people who suck the energy from you. I've heard this mm-hmm. frame differently by Michael Hyatt, and I think it might have actually came from Dan Sullivan originally. I'll see if I can dig up this blog post. It was quite... Uh, it's quite old now, but um, I remember reading a Michael Hyatt blog post about only hire people that have the batteries included. And it was basically <laughs> talking about people who have their own energy source and people who just like suck the life out of everybody in the room, yeah. right? So that is uh, getting into emotional intelligence, which I think is is fascinating. But the one thing I really wanted to, to uh, call off, well, actually I'm wrong, two things. One, I want to give a plug for in the faith-based productivity community and in the Obsidian University community, actually, um, I've been doing these live co-working sessions, which are exactly like the writer's hours that he's talking about. And these work. <laughs> these are cool. We show up, we turn our cameras on, we share our intentions, and we work in silence for an hour. And then at the end, we share what we got done, which that's pretty cool. And then the Benjamin Franklin thing, I wanted to talk about that too. Um, I'm not sure if that's what you were, were getting at. Well, so let me hit on let me hit on the one, the comrade idea. that He has this comrade mindset as one of them. Um, when when I when I was in grad school, a lot of us successfully wrote our dissertations through this model. We basically said we looked every semester and said, "Where is the hole in your schedule to where you can come in and we're just going to sit in a room together?" And the first five minutes is chatting and like just, "Hey, how are you doing?" Whatever you know, you're getting all your stuff out and making all your kind of noise. And then for the next two hours, three hours, whatever it ended up being, we're not going to talk unless somebody has a very specific question that like they need help with. And we're just going to work and we're all going to do this together. And there were probably six of us and man, is it effective, right? So exactly what you're describing, um, it is a, uh, that you do through the, through the faith-based productivity community. It is super effective, um, in terms of that. So that's, that was really the one I wanted to hit out of people. I wanted to make sure we didn't move past it uh, before I could, I could talk about it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like that comrade versus competitor mindset. Um, I've heard it framed differently of like, uh, abundance versus scarcity. I think that's kind of tied to this too, because if you have a scarcity mindset, then everything is a a threat. Everyone is a competitor. And if I win, you lose vice versa. So I, uh, I like the comrade 
mindset. But again, like I, there's a whole bunch more that goes into that abundance mindset that um, doesn't have room to talk about here. I do like this story about Benjamin Franklin, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. I liked it, too. So Benjamin Franklin in 1737, he's running for re-election to the Pennsylvania Assembly. He's got a rival whose propaganda is the word that Ali used, but he was threatening uh, Franklin's re-election campaign. So this is before he did all the stuff that he's known for. He's worried that he's going to lose. And there's this guy who just basically relentlessly criticizes everything that he does. They have complete different uh, perspectives and opinions on everything. So Benjamin Franklin hears that this guy has a rare book. And so he asks to borrow it. (laughs) And the guy gives it to him. So then when he returns it, he puts a kind note in the book. And basically, like, they never talk about it again after that. But after that, they became good friends despite their opposing views. And this is the, uh, the Benjamin Franklin effect, he calls it. When someone asks us for help, we think better of them. I think this is kind of cool. Yeah, I, I, this ties into me to the um, make somebody the expert, right? Like, so, okay, you know, you're in this situation and there's maybe like this hostile relationship or just not, not, a, not a wonderful one. If I walk in and I, and I ask them, I'm like, can you help me with this? Like, you are clearly the expert in this thing. Can you help me? you know, fix this thing? Or can you help me think through this, this problem? And you just see like everything kind of, kind of melt away. And like, they're like, Oh, okay. And it's, it's got to tie into value. It's got to tie into identity. It's got to tie into a bunch of these other core fundamental concepts. Um, but I, I like this example a lot. Um, and, and I think Ali does this, um, a good amount where he'll like, how do, how do you say it? Like, so the Ben Franklin effect, um, trying to think of another one, well, there's the the write-off effect, but I have thoughts about that when we get there. <laughs> yes, um, but he's got a ton of these like effects and these little like quippy things in order to to remember the concept, the concepts and the principles in the book, which which I I appreciate. I actually like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, it's a write-off principle, but again, put a pin yeah. in that for now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, if you're ready to move on, chapter four is in the the next section. So section two, uh, unblock. Chapter four is seek clarity. And I don't know. I, I I didn't really like this chapter. I like the the message. I like the what he's trying to drive home here. But again, like the format, he's not diving super deep into any one of these things. And these are all the things that I'm probably the most interested in. So like the whole idea of seeking clarity, that's why I do the, the personal retreats. <laughs> and it kind of bugs me sometimes when I, I don't know, maybe it shouldn't, but like just the other day, someone was talking about the 12 week year and like, Hey, it is, what do people think about this book? And I see the comments people are leaving behind it. And it's always like, Oh, this book is amazing. It's going to change your life. Or, you know, nah, it's just a bunch of snake oil. And, um, it's not like it works, but the clarity is the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you're not going to get the clarity doing tactical experiments like this is something that's like you really gotta sink your teeth into this before you really get it i think but what what did you think of the nice so the nice goals as opposed to smart goals right smart goals has been around for a million years yeah Uh, what'd you think of the nice goals and the framing of the nice goals well i like it better than smart goals i'll tell you that um okay so nice is near-term input-based controllable and energizing yep and I think those are better. Like if you're going to pick a framework to set goals, uh, 
use these. However, I still don't think that goals themselves are the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to be nicer to goals for, for Bodie Quirk's sake. He's, he's always texting me. He's like, Hey, when are you going to be nice to goals again? Uh, and the reason I don't like them is because I feel my, maybe it's just my personality. I get so attached to the outcome when this is done, this thing is what is produced. There's, there's this result. And that's dangerous for me because I will kill myself to achieve that goal. But then the minute that you achieve that goal, the goalposts now move and you have to set another one. And um, very briefly, the genesis of this for me was training for and running my first half marathon. I overtrained, hurt my knee, crossed the finish line. And then it's like, now what? Like I remember crossing the finish line. It's like, yeah, I did it. Oh, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so mine, I have a running or I have a fitness example as well. So I, I set this goal when I turned 39, that by the time I was 40, I was going to X, Y, Z, right. And, and, and I called it four, 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 right. So 4,000 total miles, 400 of those have to be running by the time I'm 40. And then there, I have to work on four things, right. So they're either a vice or something that, you know, whatever it is. So I have to work on these four things. Well, I got to thinking about it and you know, I'm doing this and, and I'm logging miles and everything's okay. Um, the running was actually way easier than the total miles. The total miles equated out to be like 12 miles a day, which <laughs> is actually way harder to do than I thought it was going to be. And I didn't care how I got the miles walking around my actual runs double counted if I was riding the bike. And then I got to the point and this gets back to Ali's main or his first point in this is the why. The commander's intent, like what, yeah. like what are you doing? What's your purpose and why are you doing this thing? And I got back to thinking of it and I was like, wait a minute, these 4,000 miles aren't trying to achieve the goal or to achieve the thing that I really wanted to achieve. Yeah, they're going to be fine and they're a good, um, they're, they're a good thing to do. They're not a negative impact on me necessarily as long as I'm not hurting myself, but they're not actually getting to, you know, he, he says, ask yourself, what is the purpose behind this? Uh, and then build your list from there or build your goals from there. And I thought, no, the 4,000 is bad. Like, that's not actually part of what I want to do. So I, I dropped that. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do the 4,000 miles. In a former life, I'd have been like, I'm a failure. Like, oh, man, I, <laughs> yeah. I set this thing out and I didn't do it. And then look at me, blah, blah, blah. But because I made an active decision, I said, oh, no, this goes against what I'm actually trying to do. It gave me the freedom to be like, okay, you can drop that first four and there's nothing like there's nothing wrong with you everything's okay like you're still a good you know you know what i mean like you didn't you didn't fail miserably it's you made an active decision to to do something different so but i round rounding this all out like i like the nearer term way better uh, goals as well as long as they're tied to your why and as long as those goals are tied to that why that you set out originally yeah i mean the best version, in my opinion, is who cares how many miles you get in, but you have embraced the identity of a runner, and so you run regularly and you enjoy it, which that, I think, connects better to the whole concept of feel-good productivity than setting goals. So mm-hmm. I know Ali has read Atomic Habits. He mentions it in this this book. He's got a great book club video on it. Uh, that whole identity-based habits, like that was the thing that really clicked for me. And when I had to do physical therapy and I had to reset my counters, essentially, it's like, okay, well, now 
had to learn to relearn to run again, basically. And I had to learn to love the process. And that's the thing that that's the reason that I still do it is because yeah. I got to that point. So the routines and the things that are attached to your identity, I feel like are more important than, than goals, but nice is better than smart. <laughs> yeah. I like, I liked out of this section as well, out of chapter four, I liked uh Goetzer's, uh, if X, then Y that trigger thing that, that leads to, you know, and, and this is in, you know, he referenced other books. I can't remember which habits book it was in, but like, there's the one where as I'm brushing my teeth, I do this other thing. Yep. And like you, you, you attach those two together. Um, I like that as well. Yeah. And he talks about time blocking, which I'm a big fan of. Um, <laughs> yes, you are. But I, I don't know that I really like the way that he framed it here. Again, you know, it's probably his way is probably better for most people who uh, maybe this is the first productivity book that they they read. Um, I agree. He talks a level one time block the tasks that you've been avoiding. And then he says time block most of your day and then time block your ideal week. I think if I were to take a crack at this, I would, yeah, select a time for the tasks that you've been avoiding. That part's the same. The reason you're procrastinating on it is because you haven't picked that that spot. But the minute that you carve out the time to do it, now you're forced to put your butt in the seat and do the thing. So you're more likely to, to follow through with it. But I do think the next piece of it would be to time block your entire day. I don't think time blocking most of your day works, at least long term. I think you need the consistency of giving every hour a job. That's the whole point. Like that, That's the mm. budgeting principle. If you really want time blocking to work for more than just the activation energy to do this one thing, if you really want to be productive on a larger scale, then time blocking is the way to do it because you provide the implementation intentions for all of the hours. I do like the ideal week too. Uh, I like that as the last piece, but I think you got to be time blocking your whole day before you get there. Well, and I think this ties into the idea he brings up in chapter chapter seven, where he's talking about breaks and scheduling breaks. Like I think if you smush these two things together where you're time blocking your entire day, but you're intentionally time blocking fun joy breaks into that day now this comes together as a as a lot cleaner of a picture in my mind yeah um, because i'm time blocking in a way that leads to feel good productivity if that if that all ties together yep i agree this episode of bookworm is brought to you by HelloFresh. with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep you can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. With a family of seven at home, dinner time can be sometimes, shall we say, complicated. But HelloFresh makes it easy to sit down and eat dinner around the table together, even on those nights when your schedule is packed. Because you can turn to HelloFresh's lineups of quick and easy meals, including their 15-minute recipes designed to help minimize mealtime stress. Perfect for busy families like mine. And the meals are top-notch because each HelloFresh box is packed with farm-fresh ingredients and everything arrives pre-portioned right to your doorstep for less hassle and less wasted food. And the quality of the meals that we've gotten with HelloFresh has been amazing. A couple of our favorites has been onion crunch chicken and sweet chili beef and green bean bowls. Even our occasionally picky eaters have loved the food that we've gotten from HelloFresh. The instructions are crystal clear, easy to follow, and take a fraction of the time compared to normal dinner prep for such a big family. We don't have to look at what's available in the fridge and then decide what we can make from that. Everything is ready to go and we just have to follow the instructions. It's really easy and really good. 
So go to HelloFresh.com slash bookwormfree and use code bookwormfree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash bookwormfree with the code bookwormfree. Start eating better today with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our thanks to HelloFresh for their support of the Bookworm Podcast. All right, chapter five is find courage. And uh, the message of this one is basically like it says on the tin. So I really like this uh, this chapter. I really like the exhortation, I guess, to do the thing. He talks about how fear can cause us to, or keep, can keep us from being productive. Uh, getting to know our fears is the first step in, in overcoming them. He's again got the different experiments, uh, but the one that I thought was most helpful from my experience, I don't think he addressed directly here, and that is the Tim Ferriss fear setting. Are you familiar with this exercise? Only because I've heard you talk about it. Yeah, so essentially uh, with fear setting, you let your mind, because your mind is scared of the unknown essentially. So if you're trying to figure out, do I quit my job and go do this thing or make some other decision, but it seems like a big big leap to get there. Well, okay, so let's think worst case scenario, what might happen if, if I made this decision? And you can paint in all the details of like, this is the worst case scenario. When you get done, you're kind of like, oh, is that it? <laughs> Because then once you can see it, you can start to realize that there are ways that we can mitigate against this and ways that we can avoid certain pieces of this from, from happening. And the minute that you start to like codify it, it doesn't seem so scary anymore once you understand what the, the dragons are. So I feel like that was the most effective thing for, for me here out of this, uh, this chapter, but he didn't really talk about it. He does share some other great strategies though. So the emotion label, the affective emotion, putting your feelings into words, the identity label, um, the 10, 10, 10 rule, which is basically, will this matter in 10 minutes, 10 weeks, or 10 years? Um, I like the talk or the uh, mentioning of spotlighting. I totally do this where you assume that everyone is paying attention to you. But the one that is most interesting to me out of the ones that he covered here is the Batman effect, which is basically adopting an alter ego. Um, I have heard some of these stories before about like Beyonce and Sasha Fierce and stuff like that, but it never really clicked to me that like I could create an alter ego. (laughs) This does not resonate with me. Like the idea of me like putting on my alter ego, like he talked about putting on his glasses and when he puts on his glasses, even though he doesn't need them anymore uh, because he had LASIK, that like he now is like, he thinks about himself differently. And the closest I can get to this is I dress up in a certain way and that changes. Like if I'm wearing sweatpants, I'm much more like, you know, low key, relaxed, whatever. If I, if I put on nicer clothes, then I'm, I'm more in a professional um, mindset. Um, but this didn't really resonate with me at all. So it's funny to say, it's funny to hear you say that like this one, this one connected with you. So what would your alter ego be? Like, I want to know who is your person? That's the thing. I don't know that I like the full-on alter ego, but you brought up the glasses thing, and that I think that there's something there. I don't think those are the same thing, by the way. Okay. But 
they they are in the context of the of the book. I feel like you can do things. It that is almost it's not environmental, but kinda. Whereas an alter ego is something totally different. I, I don't know. Like I get it. I wear glasses too, and I feel different. I'm in a different mode when I put my glasses on than when I'm not wearing them. I came from basketball practice this morning. I'm not wearing my glasses at basketball practice. The minute that I put them on, it's like, okay, now it's time to get to work. Intellectual ah, okay. Mike is here. I, I don't know, but it's hard to hard to describe, but I can sort of relate to that. Or there's, you know, uh, a certain sweatshirt that you, you put on, like with my YouTube videos, for example, uh, I'm conscious of like what my environment looks like. And so I've got a couple specific t-shirts that I think look good on my background. I got limited options in my basement office with no windows, you know? So like I kind of built up a wardrobe with those. And when I put one on at the beginning of the day, it's like, okay, it's, it's video day. It's <laughs> like, video day. There's yep. a different energy to it. So I think that that is powerful, but also I'm, I'm not ready to just like name an alter ego and embrace a new identity when it's yeah. time to do something either. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, to, to move us uh, back to one that you talked about before, the 10, 10, 10 rule is what resonated with me out of this, out of this chapter. Uh, will it matter in 10 minutes? Will it matter in 10 weeks? Will it matter in 10 years? Um, and the, I think the reason why this one resonates with me is because I find more often than not, like the 10 years one, you know, a lot of the stuff just won't like, it won't matter in 10 years. And, and we get so, so it's like, I, I smush this together with like spotlighting, like a lot of the stuff that I, I do isn't going to matter in 10 years and that's okay. Like that's completely fine. It's not meant to matter in 10 years, but in my brain, I want to do the kind of stuff that like 10, 50, a hundred years from now, people are like, yeah, do you remember when Corey did whatever it was? <laughs> yeah. And then I think back and I go, well, do I really want to do that stuff? Like, I, I mean, cause sometimes that's good and then sometimes that's bad and you know, you don't, you're not necessarily knowing how that, how that's going to work. But that was the one that, that stood out to me is is if I had an action item, you know, out of this book, I think that's going to be the one, like the top one, uh, the, key, the key action item is, all right, think about those things. Will it matter in 10? Will it matter in 10 weeks? Will it matter in 10 years? And how do you feel about that? It isn't yes or no. Like, I don't think yes or no is the appropriate answer to that. It's more a matter of how do you feel about that? Like, are you mm -hmm. okay with that? Or is that not a good use of your time because it doesn't meet the priorities you want to? But this ties back into your clarity thing. If I don't have clarity about the things I want to matter in 10 minutes, 10 weeks, or 10 years, that that exercise becomes a little bit more difficult or less less interesting or less relevant. Yep, totally. All right, so chapter six is get started. And uh, again, the premise of this chapter is to, as, as it says on the tin, start doing the thing. Uh, Newton's first law applies to productivity as well as physics. Takes more energy to get started than to keep going. Totally agree with all of this. I remember one of the things that first clicked with me in terms of beating procrastination was uh, this concept called the five-minute rule, which was I will just do this thing for five minutes. And then once you show up and you start doing the thing for five minutes, chances are that you will follow through and finish it. But you give yourself permission to disconnect and, and stop the thing if you really want to after the, the five minutes. So um, I, I don't have a whole lot of notes about this section, actually, because 
this has been the thing maybe that I've grown the most in since I first started my productivity journey. Like now if something needs to get done, I am going to find a way to get it done. Uh, I'll use the tools that Ali's talking about here, you know, reduce the environmental friction. I mean, we could spend hours talking just about how your environment affects your, your productivity, but that that's really something that people should be thinking about is uh, why are you having the, this feeling of procrastination? Why are you resisting this thing every time you sit down to actually do it? Maybe you can find a way to make it easier. Maybe you can break it down and define the next step. Maybe you can track your progress. Maybe you can find an accountability buddy uh, like he talks about. But um, I do feel that this is a good way to end this this section where really the only way to get unblocked is to actually do the thing. And whatever you got to do to figure out how to do that, like do it. And I think this is a, the law of inertia really resonated um, in terms of, oh yeah, it, I think it resonated from a standpoint of, hey, this is a thing. It's not just me, right? Like there, there are more people than just me that say like, I want to do this thing. And then two weeks go by and three weeks go by and four weeks go by. And I like what you're, what you're saying in terms of, okay, if, if you want to do a thing and then two, three, four weeks go by and you're still not doing it, why? Like, let's analyze why that is the case. Um, that was the main takeaway from chapter six for me. Uh, the, the experiment that resonated the most with me uh, was probably either tracking your progress or finding an accountability partner. Um, accountability partners have been huge in my life in terms of, I want to do a thing. I know this is going to be challenging. Is there, is there a person who can come alongside and do this with? I disagree with him on some level because he says um, a stranger with a similar goal. Hmm. I've never tried to do this with a stranger, but I've, I've always done it with somebody who's like in my, not necessarily the immediate circle, but at least like one, you know, circle out. Um, that way it doesn't feel so, you know, difficult to do the things he says where it's agree on the culture, discuss the process in more detail. So I think the accountability piece is, is fantastic. And, and like, I think that's a the core piece to overcoming the inertia of falling back into your old routines or just not doing it. I'm just not as sold on like, well, finding a stranger, like finding some like <laughs> random stranger with a similar goal. It's like, well, how do I, how do I do the other things? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought, I thought chapter six, I agree with you. It was a, it was a good way to wrap up the, the, uh, this section. There is something about that though. I don't know exactly how to define it, but if you have a stranger with a similar goal and you get together and we're going to do this thing and I tell you that I'm going to do this thing, like the connection that we have is around doing the thing i will feel like i have to do that thing because i don't want to let you down even though you're a complete stranger whereas if you have somebody as close to you you could be like yeah i'm going to do this thing i think it's easier to just be like oh yeah well it didn't happen and well they understand they, they know everything else i got going on or i don't know but like there's there's a it's almost like they'll forgive me, but the stranger might not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a service where it's like an accountability buddy service where you go on there and you put in, I'm looking for an accountability buddy in X. And then like somebody else comes in and they're like, I'm looking for that too. And then you connect. It's like a matchmaking accountability buddy <laughs> service. I'm sure there's something like that. Um, I was thinking of focus mate, but that's more, that, that's not specifically in a, 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 a shared 
shared area or anything. It's just, you, you are working with a stranger, but it's like the live co-working sessions that I was describing mm -hmm. before where you can just schedule those, those calls. I think the best version of the, the positive peer pressure is probably a mastermind group where it's very clear that we're here because we want to do this thing, but everybody is very much invested in the outcomes. So that investment means that you're not going to tolerate it when somebody's like, yeah, sorry, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Are you still part of one? I couldn't, yep. I, you were at one point. I remember you mentioned it. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I, you got to find the right mix of people. Um, and you also need to make sure that, uh, like I said, that there's that investment piece. So I've been thinking through like, how do, how could I maybe facilitate these in a better, more meaningful fashion? Did it a long time ago for the focus podcast, just connected people who had time blocks available. But I think most of those didn't really work out because the investment piece wasn't, wasn't there. People yeah. were just kicking the tires. Oh, maybe I'll be interested in this thing. Now you really got to commit to it because you got to develop those relationships to the point where you feel like you can't let those other people down. Yeah. All righty. What do you think? Moving to part three. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So part three, um, is labeled sustain and chapter seven is where we will start. And this is, uh, conserve. The big thing I wanted to chat about from here is burnout. <laughs> <laughs> probably because I'm closer to it than I care to admit. <laughs> um, but I th also think he talks about different types of burnout. There's overexertion burnout, there's depletion burnout, there's misalignment burnout. And uh, burnout, the actual definition that Ali shares is an occupational phenomenon characterized by feelings of energy, de energy depletion or exhaustion, uh, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job and reduced professional efficacy. That's a lot. Yeah, I, I also liked the the breakdown of burnout. So I've heard of burnout and burnout I feel like has talked a decent amount about, but the three ways he broke it down, overexertion, depletion, and misalignment I thought we're really good at like thinking about, okay, it's not just that I'm burnout. Like, is that, am I burnout for a reason? Am I burnout because there's too much work to do? Okay. Am I burnout? That's overexertion. Um, am I burnout because it's, I'm not resting correctly or I'm not resting well. I think he had some interesting pieces here about how we don't rest well and we are, uh, inclined more and more to not rest well. Um, that's depletion burnout. And then there's misalignment burnout and that's doing the wrong thing. Like, do I not have the right clarity? Do I not have the right way to think about the, the work that I do in terms of I'm doing a lot of things. It's just not things that I care about or not things that, as I think Ali would say, not things that bring this feel good, this joy to, uh, to my world. And I, and I really liked that piece of, um, uh, of chapter seven. Yeah, let's double click on that for a second because you, you kind of framed it as bringing joy through the things that you're doing. But I, I think that that uh, is the message on the tin. But also I feel like this is something that is kind of within your control. Like your perspective on your work can be the thing that changes. The work doesn't have to, to change for your work to feel very different. And it's not just work, but that's the the easy one. So when it comes to this whole conservation idea, I mean, the, the experiments that are in here are all around kind of protecting margin and conserving maybe energy. 
So maybe burnout doesn't even really belong in this section, at least how I think of burnout. Maybe that really is more tied to the idea of recharging. I don't know. I mean, I, a case could be made for it here too. If you don't have the resources, you're going to feel burnt out. Uh, but I think the thing that's going to determine over a length of time, whether you are going to get to that point is going to be your ability to recharge. So all of the experiments in here, I like, you know, where um, you're scheduling your breaks, you're adding friction to things that are distractions, you're learning to say no to things. I mean, these are not simple things, but they are very important. Uh, one thing that did jump out to me though, was that breaks aren't a special treat. They're an absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. And you shared the story about he's in the uh, the ER and things are going sideways and he's working really hard and his supervisor comes up and he's like, spend five hours. You need to take a break. And he's like, what? No, this person needs this. You know, and he's like, no, Ali, no one's going to die if you go have lunch. <laughs> it's like, yep. if you don't take a break, you'll make a mistake. And then that's when we've got a problem. So I've been thinking about that a lot. This isn't necessarily an action item associated with this book. But I am committed to building in the uh, sabbaticals to my regular routine this year. What do you think about building in sabbaticals in your day? Like, do you do this? Do you have natural sections of break in your day? Um, or, you know, like when you do your time blocking, so you, you, know, you time block out every day, do you build in break there? Um, not usually. So the way that I time block, I use... Uh, the biggest possible blocks that I can. And then by doing that, I build in margin so I can either, if I'm like really being productive at the beginning of the day, I'll, I'll make a bunch of progress. And then at the in the afternoon, you know, if I'm feeling down, then I'll just, I'll take a break then and go do something else. Um, so yeah. sometimes that, that happens, but otherwise it's just, I've got, you know, two hours to do this thing. It took me an, an hour and a half. So instead of just immediately starting on the next thing, I'm going to just goof around on my side quests for those other, other 30 minutes um, because those are fun. And those are actually ways that you can, you can recharge. So I'm kind of getting into the next chapter, but. Yeah. I, th I think mine, mine with this is I value the front end of the day and the back end of the day so strongly that like I want to I want to try to figure out how to do that middle chunk of the day where essentially I'm out of the house right I'm at the university I'm I'm doing that kind of work I want to make that as efficient as possible that way I can go home and see the boys and spend time with the boys before they go to bed. And then if I need to redo, if do more work, okay, I can re-engage in that either super early in the morning or I can re-engage in that, uh, later in, uh, later at, at night. Um, so I don't schedule breaks into my typical working hours, uh, during the day either, just because I'm trying to emphasize that first part of the day in the, in the later part of the day, uh, for the family. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Let's go to the next chapter because I want to continue that topic. So one of the ways that I take a break <laughs> is I, I simply just switch up the, the context with the, this whole idea of, of recharging. So there's a couple things in here about bringing in nature, taking a walk. For me, this is going for a run, <laughs> getting yep. outside. Yep. So that's not a break. That's physically difficult, uh, but... I can tell you every time I go for a run in the middle of the workday, I come back, I'm more energized to engage with the 
creative work that I have to do. Um, the co-working space that I, I have, uh, I picked that one because the, well, a couple reasons. First of all, I have like this little cubicle, which you saw when we recorded last time. Um, it's like a little, a little glass cube. It's like eight by 10 with a 12 foot ceiling and impossible to get all of the, the echoes out there, out of there. But I only go there when I like have to do a live session or something. Most of the time I grab my, my computer and I go sit in the actual co-working space, which has these big, beautiful floor to ceiling windows that overlook the river and the sun will rise and, and set and it'll come in through those windows. And it, it it's amazing. Like it, it definitely uh, helps my energy levels when I am over there working. But the other reason is that there is a bathroom with a shower. So I have my running stuff in my office and I'll hit a wall and be like, man, I just don't feel like doing anything. Well, let's, let's go for a run and then come back, take a shower. And every single time it's like, okay, now I'm re-energized. That's not the only thing you can do. He talked about like, um, he's got his guitar and actually it wasn't with this section, but he put his guitar in the, the middle of the room so that it was easier to pick up and just play every once in a while. I've got a guitar hanging on the wall back here. Uh, I've done that before where it's just like, okay, I just need a context switch. I'm going to pick up an instrument and strum around on it a little bit. And 10, 15 minutes later, my energy levels are, are much higher. See, and, th- and this is the point I wish you would have gone to here is if I'm working a physically taxing job, you know, where I'm building something, construction, whatever it is, my break can very much look like reading a book right? Where I'm not actually taking a break to your point, right? Like you're going for a run. That's not actually taking a break. Like that's planned into your, Mm -hmm. into your schedule, but it's taking that cognitive break, right? Like it's, it's switching that context in a way that our brains think we are taking a break, you know what I mean? Or our bodies feel like we are taking a break or we actually are in that, in that context. So I really liked, or I really like this conversation because it's like, yes, break doesn't mean what he gets into later where I like sit down and just, aimlessly, you know, look at the ceiling for, for 40 minutes. It might be that like, that'd be great. I've, I recently got into, um, a non, non sleep, deep rest. Have you ever heard of this? <laughs> no. Okay. So non sleep, deep rest is you hit that lull like at like two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you're not going to take a nap, right? Most, most people aren't, they're not going to lay down and take a nap, but you can put on these playlists or there are apps for it where it almost walks you through like a guided meditation that puts you like right on the border of taking a nap, right? Like, I mean, you're like <laughs> super duper close if you do it well. And man, you feel like a ton better when you're done. And like some days you need that. Like some days I need that. Other days I need to walk. Like I just need to go out and get in, in nature. Yeah. I can't remember if it's in this section or not. I think it was in this section where they, they talked about the fact that um, they showed the pictures to people and the pictures impacted their... Uh, level of productivity or their yep. ability to do a task and the green one or the pretty one versus the gray one. And I got to thinking about that in terms of how much is the artificial uh, ability to bring nature in. Even if we can't get a window, we can put pictures of pretty things, uh, pretty natural things around us. Man, like what an impact that that potentially has on our psychology and our ability to to rest and recharge. I thought that was a really interesting takeaway. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. Um, the other thing we should talk about in this section is the write-off principle, because that's where this is. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, do you remember the write-off principle? 
Yeah, so the write-off principle is the idea that we should grant um, ourselves permission to write off a day and intentionally step away from achieving anything. So you sound like you're very passionate about this, or you, at least you wanted to talk about this. I'll tell you my <laughs> my take on it before you you dive in. Yeah, I think this is valuable for me. Um, so not, um, I don't like it on the passive nature, right? Like if I'm going into something and I'm planning to get something done that day, and um, and I don't do that, like that doesn't resonate as well with me, or that that doesn't feel as good to me. If I plan in a day, like, no, like I'm writing off this day, almost like taking a vacation day. I like this principle a lot. Um, I can tell you, you know, from an education standpoint, the the holiday break, that's a very valuable write it off period of time where there has to be built into there some days where I intentionally am not doing anything. Like I'm not doing any admin work. I'm not doing any kind of stuff to get ready for the next semester. Because if not, I'm just completely wiped, right? Like to the point of this chapter being recharge. I recharge. I won't be able to recharge if I don't do that. So from that standpoint, I like it. But from a passive standpoint, I, I really get frustrated with those days where it's like, oh, nothing's going my way. I'm just writing it off. I don't care. I'm done. With, I'm done with this day. I don't like it from that perspective. <laughs> there you go. What now? What's your take? Well, I like the the principle itself. My issue is with the spelling of this. <laughs> ah, <laughs> really? It's a spelling issue. Well, so it's spelled. R E I T O F F. Why? Did do you know why? Uh, I don't remember gathering that there was any reason why he wrote it that way. He didn't actually say in the book, but uh, where do you think that came from? Oh my gosh! Is that like some German philosopher who did one of these studies, like all these other ones that we've read about? I have no idea. Like, I mean, I, I feel like I should know something that I don't know right now. No, no. So if you, you had to guess, what would you what would you think? Where did, where did that term write off come from? I have no idea. Like, I'm I mean, based on what you said, maybe a person who has studied this. Yeah, that's the thing. It it's not. <laughs> it's literally just a different spelling of the word write off. Okay. All right. <laughs> and, and that so, and that bugged you. <laughs> it does bug me. It does, and this is <laughs> this is completely unfair. Uh, I realize, but um, I listened to Nick Milo's podcast where he interviewed Ali okay. and Ali literally said like, yeah, I just wanted something that looked different. So I changed it. And then like people were kind of running with it. Like, Oh, is this some, some guy's German last name? And he didn't feel the need to correct them, which I get, but also like, why? Yeah, I had no <laughs> I feel idea. it's a little no bit idea. deceptive based on everything else and all the other research that is in this book. You see a name spelled like that and you're thinking this is named after somebody, right? But in the section there's no description of the person because it's literally just the story that he had with his flatmate where she's yeah. like, "Why don't you just write off the whole day?" That's where the whole principle came from. And so this I feel like was a poor choice. <laughs> Yep, I can I, I can easily see that it's it's he probably thinks of it as an Easter egg, right? Like that's yeah, one of those, yeah. You know, Which you know, from one perspective, maybe an argument could be made. I think uh, at best, it's not that it's not that funny. It's not yeah, it, it's not that clever. Um, at worst, I feel like you're opening up yourself to people questioning yeah. uh, the validity of a lot of other stuff that you've just said. So the interesting thing about this is. I don't know if 
what about this uh, or about my way of thinking or, or my personality is. I saw it. I read it. And I was like, I wonder why he spelled it that way. Nah, whatever. And like, and I just kind of moved on. Like, I didn't really like sit on it. I didn't think he didn't connect it to anybody. Like you're saying, because I was like, was I supposed to pick up on the fact that this is like ties to some researcher? I did not pick that up. If I was supposed to pick that up, yeah. Um, so okay, I I can see where you're where you're coming from. Which not again is I not thought. really that big a deal because most people will just take that approach. Most people who read a lot are going to take that approach because if you're not going to tell me like I don't have time to go dig through all of the things that you're citing in the back of your book and figure this stuff out for myself. So me personally I feel like as an author you have a responsibility to communicate things as clearly and effectively as you can to your readers and I just don't think the the weird spelling of of write off is in alignment alignment with that. So but I mean, that has literally nothing to do with the content of the book itself. Yeah. I thought you had something <laughs> fundamentally wrong. And I was like, I want, I want to hear this. I'm excited to nope, hear this. No, nope. Okay. All Sorry. Right, well. That's it. All right. Go to the last chapter. Yes, sir. Let's do All it. right. Last chapter. Chapter nine is a line. And uh, I like this one a lot. Uh, I've got a couple different action items from this chapter specifically. So the big idea here that... I liked was the the spectrum of the extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation and how not all extrinsic motivation is bad. Um, if you go on one end, you got extrinsic, then you've got interjected and then identified and then intrinsic. The most effective one is actually that identified motivation. It's almost intrinsic motivation. You're basically taking external events and external circumstances and using them to create the intrinsic motivation is kind of how I think about that. And I think that's really powerful. Uh, alignment is the most powerful thing you can do if you really want to be more productive going back to what you're talking about with like the personal retreat stuff. That's the other thing that, that that gives you is it gives you alignment. One of the things I do is I take my life theme, I take my core values, I look at those and I ask myself, do these still resonate? And then if they do, then I'm gonna be using that as the baseline for everything else that happened throughout the last 90 days. Was I living in alignment with these things? And if not, you know, I've already decided the core values and the life theme aren't changing. So what I'm doing needs to change because mm. if you're not in alignment, it is going to create friction. It is going to feel like you're, uh, you're not, not in the, the right place. Um, so there's lots of different things that you can use to kind of push things in the right direction. Uh, one that he talks about was the eulogy method where you write your eulogy. I think I actually did this at one point as an action item in Bookworm, but I actually want to go back and I want to review it and update it. So if it's if I'm misremembering that and I haven't done it yet, I'm going to actually do it. But otherwise, I'm just going to touch it up and uh, probably make a few, few edits to that. Um, there's also the Wheel of Life. That's experiment number three. And I like the the categories that he had for his Wheel of Life. He had nine different categories. I've, I've typically done eight but they basically align with, um, uh, well, I'd have to look it up, the specific areas, but there's, they're, they're groups of three. So there's like three groups of three and each one of the areas are, are basically touching on uh, different aspects of who he is as a person. So I wanna actually take those categories, I might modify them a little bit, but I wanna use those for my wheel of life that I do in my next personal retreat. 
Um, and then there was this book, Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett that he talked about. Bill Burnett is the guy who designed the Apple Mouse. I thought this sounded fascinating, so I've already ordered this book and, and want to go through it. Uh, I liked um, a lot about this section um, in terms of it became more actionable, right? You're seeing a common theme with me uh, from the last book and from this book. I, I liked uh, the actionable sections in the last book. I liked the actionable sections in this one. Um, I resonated the most with uh, Wheel Life. Uh, that's like the one when we got out of this, I was like, I want to do that one. Like I, I have never done that before. Um, and I want to, I want to do that one. I've done Odyssey plans. I actually teach Odyssey plans um, with my students and, and we, they work through Odyssey plans at the very beginning of their career uh, in school. And then at the very end of their career. So those are uh, very, very effective. But as he puts that, he puts that in the long-term horizon section and I completely agree with him. Like those are long-term planning things. Those do not help you with the day-to-day activities, and they don't even help you really that much with the with the medium-term horizon. Um, so when you're doing an Odyssey plan, you really got to think about like what's my long-term trajectory here, and how do I plan out my long-term trajectory? Um, I, I I thought the short-term section was lacking. Like I wanted more from the short-term section of okay, how do we take you know. Um, how do we take these things that we're trying to do long-term and medium-term and then turn them into to daily actions? It's not that the ones he provided, so the two he provided are the three alignment quests. Each morning, choose three actions for the day uh, to get you a step closer to where you want to be. And then the second one was alignment experiments, which is identify what you're feeling, come up with a hypothesis, and then execute and try to make change. I just felt like that that section was lacking, and I, w- I was left wanting more mm-hmm. um, in that section in terms of how do I how do I tangible make that on, on the day-to-day Um because the way I think about uh, kind of this whole book and the way he frames this whole book is where we're going to get to next is this productivity scientist, right? Think like this productivity scientist. And I went into the book and I kind of still go into the book thinking of it more, not productivity in the day-to-day operations of my life, but productivity more in the like, there's this there's this thing I want to achieve or there's this thing I want to do better at, I guess for lack of a better way to, to say it but it's a bigger issue. And how do I take steps now to in, in approach that forward? And that's really kind of where I wanted this alignment thing to, to come out in that, in that short-term section. Gotcha. Yeah. I like the alignment section and obviously you could go deeper with this. Um, we may have to, we may have to dig deeper into the odyssey plans now that I know that you, uh, actually do these. Um, yeah, maybe you can walk me through an Odyssey plan. I don't know. I'd be happy to. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I so in my mind, kind of what I'm I'm struggling with here is this alignment section feels like the most important piece to me, but it's also at the end of the book. On the one hand, I'm like this should have came first because this is so fundamental to everything else and kind of changes everything else. But also, I think that. Uh, for most people who are coming to the topic of feel-good productivity, this is the right place for this uh, at the end. Um, I I really think the the format that he's got here where we went through energize, unblock, and then once you can kind of like get a little bit of breathing room, that's the time when you can figure out the long-term stuff with, with sustain. So I think this is a really... Uh, really powerful way to end the book. Well, it's not actually the end because there's still the the last word, but basically the end. Anything else you want to mention here before we go to the last word? 
Uh, not not on this section. We can go. We can move on. Okay. So then the last word is literally just uh, the section where he's encouraging us to think like a productivity scientist. Uh, talks about how productivity isn't about discipline. It's about doing what makes you feel happier, less stressed, and more organized. And I think on the surface, people are going to either uh, put too much stock in that or they're going to write that off, <laughs> write off. <laughs> because it's not that simple, but I think he's right. Um, when it comes to long-term productivity, it's not about how much you can force yourself to do things that you hate. It's about the love of the things that you are doing, whether it's natural and it's just something that's really fun or it's something that you've created enough meaning for the thing that you just want to do it so badly. And uh, I also think that he talks about here how some experiments are going to work for you, others won't. The book is a toolkit, so figure out what works and discard everything else. That is the perfect way to, to end this. Now, there are lots of these experiments, six per chapter, nine different chapters. Um, so you can't go into it thinking all of those experiments are going to be exactly what I need and I'm just going to apply everything that he tells me to do and that's going to fix whatever situation I find myself in. This is a, how do you, how do you put it? Um, a recipe, a recipe book maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so you have to kind of pick the things out of here. And then the last thing he encourages us to do is enjoy the process. And I think that is uh, really good advice and a great way to tie this one together. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that he he's consistent in his theme through it, that it's a he has experiments, right? And then he says, think like a scientist and, you know, keep doing these things until you figure it out, like experiment your way through this. I like that he's consistent in that theme. Um, I think that comes from like kind of the way he did it and the way he started thinking about productivity and then the way he got better at thinking about productivity and then the way he formed a business out of thinking about productivity. Like I... I like the way he buttons uh, everything up from this. Uh, I have a couple questions about the whole book in general for you, if you're if you're okay with taking those at this time. <laughs> sure. Okay. So this book feels to me like a series of YouTube videos or a series of podcast episodes that was smushed into a book format. Um, and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way, but like I almost think about the structure of this as, hey, you could easily do an episode for every one of these experiments. You could do an episode for the different subheadings he has within the chapters. You could do an episode for the actual chapter itself, and then you could do an, an episode for the part. Like There is a whole series of content here. I went and tried to do research, so correct me if, if you did this and, and I'm wrong. I don't think there's a course built out of this. No. But like I could very easily see a course coming out of this that is the, hey, do you like this or do you want to focus on this one aspect of this experiment? Come come do this course, which is a very business-like creator mindset to I'm going to take this one thing and I'm going to turn it into 15 things and all of these are going to be yeah. revenue, revenue drivers for me. And I mean none of that in the negative sense. I mean that's what the book felt like to me as I got to the end. Yeah, you know, I, I said there wasn't uh, a course, but I'm thinking there may be now because I think Ali had a Skillshare course at one point. I'm trying to look that up quick and see 
that follows this uh, this format. Can't tell just from the the web page, um, but you're right that there's definitely opportunity to go deeper on a, a lot of the stuff that he uh, he talks about here, which I don't think necessarily is a a bad thing for the book, but. We should actually talk about action items before we get to style and rating. Any other questions you ha- had before we get there? Uh, no, I think I might have had another one, but I forgot it. So it's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, action items. Um, I have a couple. So one thing I want to do is add those side quests to my day. I don't know that I have a formal way to do this yet. So I will try and I think I'm already realizing some of the benefit of this. But I'm going to try to figure out, is there a formal way that I want to uh, to log these? And maybe there won't be. Um, I also want to write and review my, or review my eulogy. And then uh, update my Wheel of Life with the new categories, which are listed on page 247. But uh, the categories really are not the important thing. It's really just picking the areas that uh, resonate with you. So I want to use those as inspiration, but then revisit my personal retreat template. How about you? You got any action items? Yeah. So the one I mentioned before, um, the 10, 10, 10, I want to start putting that into, into practice, but I want to start filtering the, not necessarily the activities I do day to day, but the bigger projects I take on and even some of the side quests I take on and run those through the, will it matter in 10 minutes? Will it matter in 10 weeks? Will it matter in 10 years? I really want to start running some of those, those things through that filter. Uh, the second thing I want to do is I want to, it happened in the last section, the align section, um, the 12-month celebration. So mm. it's this idea that you're going you're gonna to have a celebration with a friend 12 months from now, and what do you want to be celebrating at that time? Um, and I want to um, develop what I think I would want to be celebrating, and then what is the first action step that gets me there? And that's kind of his, you know, his uh, experiment there. So I think those two are are good tangible ones for me to, to take away. Cool. All right. Style and rating. Uh, I have been dreading this section because honestly, (laughs) I don't know what to rate it. Um, I have uh, made a resolution that I'm only going to use whole point ratings based on, uh, feedback from David Sparks. And this one is kind of like firmly between four and five stars for me. <laughs> what What is the, I haven't heard this, his his need, his desire to push you to whole, whole numbers. Why? Why can't you have a middle number? Uh, well, I think there's, there's, an, there's something to be said about the simpler ratings. I'm thinking of like Siskel and Ebert where it's literally just thumbs up or thumbs down. So I think the, the point fives, uh, it just makes the, the scale longer. So I'm trying to, trying to condense that. It also fits better with my, uh, my notes and my metadata in obsidian, (laughs) but, um, there's a lot to, to like about this book. And uh, I think if I'm coming to productivity, this would be to, to learn more. This would be one of the first ones that I would probably pick up. All right. That that's the question I was going to ask you. I'm so glad you said that because I thought this seemed like a very good first book to recommend to somebody thinking about productivity. And you just said, so you just confirmed that. Okay, good. Yeah. uh, I think that Ali hits on a lot of the important ideas and he does so in a way that is more cohesive than just here's some tactics. 
That's the problem with a lot of productivity advice is people are like, oh, the Pomodoro method, that's amazing. It's one tactic that you can use with success in certain situations, but it's not going to work all the time. And every time you come across one of those tactics, you're like, oh, this is the one, you know, and then you're just kind of setting yourself up for failure. So I think that he does a great job of uh, laying this out. I like the structure of the three parts, the energize, unblock, and then uh, sustain because you have to first get going. That's the energize piece. And then when things get hard, how do you make them flow again? That's unblock. And then long-term, how do we make sure that we can continue to do this? That's where sustain comes in. And I think he's uh, he's spot on with how he approaches this. The stories that he shares are great. He's a he's a better storyteller than I, I expected, to be honest. Um, so he's got his own personal stories, which those are honestly the ones that I like the most. But he also adds some additional historical stories like the uh, – the uh, Benjamin Franklin um, story. I'd never heard that before. And that was a, a really cool story. I like that one a lot. I have some nitpicks with specific sections of the book, the write-off principle, you know, the, the weird naming. I don't really like the experiments, but also as I was thinking through, like how else would you frame those? I, I think actually for what he's trying to do here, that's pretty effective especially when you take into consideration at the end, he's saying like, this is a toolkit. You're going to run these experiments. Some are going to work. Some aren't, you know, that's, that's really effective. So I don't know. Uh, I think there's some really good stuff in here. And obviously having read a bunch of other books at this point could easily go deeper on a lot of this, uh, this stuff. Um, but I think he did a, he did a pretty good job with this one. Um, I'm going to give it five stars. Uh, I think for me where I am right now, it probably is a four-star book, but I've read hundreds of productivity books. (laughs) So um, if you are a bookworm listener who is interested in this topic and you have not read all of those books, uh, this would be the place to start, like I mentioned. Now, I guess the caveat here is that if you've been in the productivity space for a while. And, um, a lot of the things that we talked about today, you recognize, like you've read books where, which talk about where those things come from. Maybe there isn't a whole lot that's new here for you. However, I think, uh, just the way that he describes things and the stories that he tells and the different perspectives that he shares, this is not regurgitated productivity advice. It's a entertaining, engaging read. So I would recommend that that people read this one. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm in a similar boat. Um, I'll I'll give you the rating first. Uh, if I could give it four and a half, right? But if we're not going to do four, um, and, I mean and you can no, if you want. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I lean much more towards five than I lean towards four. Um, on this, uh, I think the decision to make it as this productivity scientist idea. When that hit, the experiments were a natural byproduct of that, right? So um, would I have captured the experiments that way? Probably not. But had I made the decision to do it a productivity science book, yes, I would have probably done it in a, in a similar way. What I like is it it points people, using that phrase experiment, right? It points people to try. Like, just give it a shot. See what happens. And this is where, you know, I, I came in with the question about, would this be a first, do you think this would be a good first productivity book for people? Because that was my gut, 
my gut takeaway from this. I've not read nearly as many productivity books as you have, but I've been in the space, you know, like reading and researching and listening to people talk about this kind of stuff. So I wouldn't consider myself an absolute newbie to it, but I also wouldn't consider myself as advanced as, as you are having read um, as many books as you've read on productivity. But my gut reaction was, man, this would be a really good book for somebody who's first interested in, ah, I want to improve. I want to get better. I want to be more productive. What's in, what's an approach or what's something, some resource that's going to give me a lot of different things to try, right? And I can try this one. I can try this one. And it's a fairly small buy-in to try it. Like you don't even have to read the whole book. Just go to that experiment section and try, uh, you know, try that experiment. So I agree. I think I think this is a five. I think it was very um, accessible to read. Um, I think it was very well organized in terms of its of its structure and um, overall. The qualms I had with it were were very very small um, in terms of the importance and the nature of the of the style of the book. So yeah, I definitely give it a five. Awesome. So we got a, a golden book here from Ali Abdal. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for thanks for recommending this one because. Uh, it was, I didn't have an expectation going in, but when I got done with it, I was like, oh, that was a great, that was a great read. Yeah. I enjoyed this one a lot. And, uh, it inspired me to pick up Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett. And, uh, I think I want to go through that one next time. So you want to come back and walk me through an Odyssey plan? Wait, I'm going to be the most recurring guest ever as of next episode <laughs> yes no absolutely this this is this is a ton of fun i'm learning i'm learning a lot and i'm really enjoying the conversation so yeah absolutely awesome cool well thanks everyone for listening if you are reading along with us pick up designing your life by bill burnett and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks